Hello and welcome to another episode of Mastering Dungeons. I'm Sean Merwin and Teos is having some weather-related issues, so we're hoping that he's warm, dry, and well-fed. And in the meantime, I have Mike, Shay, Sly Flourish himself here to do the news and do some answers to questions. Mike, thank you for being on the show. Oh, it's always my pleasure. You know, I love being here. What's new with you? Uh, I just, like, not, you know, a half hour before the show, sent the final Kickstarter update for Forge of Foes. So, Teos and Scott Fitzgerald Gray and I had worked on a project all last year called Forge of Foes, uh, where you can build awesome, build and run awesome 5e monsters for, for your game. We launched the Kickstarter last March, I think it was, and we finally, we delivered all of the products, print and digital, uh, by now and sent out our final update saying we are officially done. So, of course, there's always hmm. last minute things. Hey, I didn't get my email. Hey, the backer kit thing didn't go. Hey, our package got lost in the mail. Hey, I got in its damage. There's always like Kickstarters never end, mm -hmm. really. I'm still right. answering. I'm still fulfilling stuff from my like <laughs> Kickstarters like five years ago. But the bulk of it is done and we are super excited. We love the product. It, awesome. You know, I, I just it, it's it's egotistical. But like when you open it up your own, I don't know if do you feel this way when you open up your books, but like I open it up and I'm just I'm so proud of the work we did there. It's really, really great. I I have my copy right here. Oh, look at you. Bless uh, you. Keep it. Keep it. Keep it close. Bless you, uh, my friend. So how long was it from, you know, the actual Kickstarter launch to to now? It wasn't that long. No. So it's less than a year. Uh, yeah. It was March to January. Right. Uh, we had okay. we had hoped we, we almost got it all done in 2023 but we literally had like we were just following a shipping container moving its way across the ocean super slow and then there was like a lot of last minute paperwork and then our european distributor uh had a bunch of kickstarters that they were fulfilling at the same time yeah. and we got you had to go wait in line there so it ended yeah. up being we had about two months of sort of downtime while we were waiting for that but like nor all north american about 80 percent of the kickstarter a little, a little bit more about 90 percent was fulfilled in by october or I guess, yeah, October, early November. And then the remaining 20%, which was all of our physical non-North American deliveries happened in uh, late December and early January. Amazing. That's great. Yeah. And the whole you, project. You I run a tight we, ship there at Sly Flourish Publishing. Well, we, you know, it, so, I mean, this is, it's interesting because like I, I, I'm, I'm in businesses I don't want to be in, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but now I've got it kind of, the paths are smoothed out. So like, do I really... Like now I have relationships with book printers and now I have a relationship with distributors and, and we have this sort of workflow already set. It's like, would we want to have, or like, I would love to have someone else do it, but now we have it. So why yeah. wouldn't we use Well, it? you have it until next time when some other thing comes up, right? Uh, yeah, or, but like entire companies would have to go out of business before it would shake up the whole Well, that thing, never right? happens. Like, well, big business, you know, big business is bigger than us, right? Yeah, like gotcha. Friesen's in Canada is huge. <laughs> like right, it would, yeah, they've true. been the printer. They print National Geographic. Yeah. So, you know, they're, 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 they would, you know, big changes. I mean, small ones could absolutely occur. Um, but yeah, so there's that weird thing of like, we've got it wired now. And I, I'm, you know, about half of what we do, what I do, what my, my wife and I do are things that like, isn't really what I want to be doing, but like, uh -huh. well, We've, we're now in the spot, and it's easier for us to do it than to try to transfer it, or we would end up having to pay a lot of money yeah. to have someone else do the things that we already have wired, right? Yeah. So that's kind of a strange spot to be in. But, yeah, we're super happy with it. Yeah. yeah. And it, the project took longer than that because we were working on it for months before we launched the Kickstarter. I think yeah. we started it, like, mid-2022 or something like that when we started writing a lot of it. 
Yeah. I always feel bad when there's a Kickstarter I'm involved in. I don't run them myself because I don't even want to get anywhere near that madness. Yeah, well, but if yeah. there's one I'm involved in and it's like even a couple months late, I feel really bad. And then I will get a message from a Kickstarter I backed four years ago yeah. saying, and like, oh, we're so sorry for being late. I was like, wait, I feel bad yeah. about a two-month delay when right. I've got four we had, years. We had, people, we had people that were like kind of angry with us because of delays in other people's Kickstarters. And they were like, hey, I got hosed on this other one. You better be on. And where are you right now? And how come, you know, and I'm like, man, we're fine. Right? <laughs> like, you know, we're in a different spot. Yeah. So we get all kinds, right? Like there's definitely people where they, they just, I mean, there's, it, it, we don't really talk about it, but there's just a percentage of people who back it and never get any product and paid the money and they never contact you again. And it's, mm. it's not small. It's like two or 3%. You know, and, and you know, like I want to give them stuff. Like it's not like we're happy that they gave us free money, especially PDFs, right? It cost me right. nothing to give them a PDF. And yeah, lots of people just never get it, and it's sad because like you know you want you want to give it to them. Mm. Um, so yeah, it's really it's very interesting, you know, running it. And now I think this is like my seventh or eighth Kickstarter, and you know you're still learning stuff from new ones. And my my wife now has retired from her day job and is now uh, kind of working you know, mostly full-time, like we're going to significant amount of hours a week, I'll tell you, yeah. uh, handling a lot of this stuff. And it's really interesting for us together to kind of noodle through how this whole thing works and what we can do and streamlining it and all that stuff. So that's really fascinating. Well, you've been doing it for long enough, Lord knows. Uh, you've got the Sly Flourish media empire uh, <laughs> up and running between streams and podcasts and your blogs and, and now, you, you know, all the books that you've published. So that's a, uh, it's, yeah, it's great. It's great that you can keep I'm, it going. I'm very lucky. Yeah. 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 Very, very, very lucky. I'm very happy with how things have been going. And, and as I thank, sit here. Thank you for asking how things oh, are going. Oh, <laughs> sure, sure. Well, as, as I sit here and, you know, think about the industry and its ups and downs and what it's going through. And I've been getting message after message from people who have been in the industry for years. And not just RPG industry, but gone between RPGs and video games. And they've been laid off. Yeah. You know, the numbers are are insane um yeah. the number of people who've been laid off in the entertainment field and so you know living through the tough times and making it through to the to the times where we get an, an uptick in uh in the industry is is tough so yeah, yeah. hats off yeah. to you if i could take this hat off yeah no don't do it you'll <laughs> screw up your headphones I, I know we don't want that well mike since you're here why don't we take some of our listener emails and see if you have any uh, thing. You don't have to be Teos. You can. I'm going to uh, try to channel Teos as much as possible. I want to hear that the as the possible. Mike the Mike Shea take. Okay. Um, Teos, although the, I'm sorry. Yeah, there you go. The, the 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 first message we got though is actually from answering something Teos said. So here we go. This is from Wireless TKD via YouTube. Uh, Teos said something in the last episode disappointment is part of the fun because it's downstroke it's the downstroke of the fun cycle this is a great point i struggle with this a lot as a dm because i realize that disappointment hits so hard for so many of my players i don't know if it's 5e or ttrpgs in general but i find that as a dm i'm always working really hard to manage those downbeats for my players so this so this brings me to the challenge. How do you make downbeats in combat fun? Or is that a complete paradox? Uh, what do you think, Mike, as a, 
Oh, that's a good question. And there's a lot of thoughts here. Uh, a couple mm -hmm. of things that kind of leap to mind is one, this is where it's like we can talk about it at a high level and talk about game theory and game design overall and like game, you know, game design and actual specific products. But then like you're a DM at your table running a game for the people in front of you. Mm -hmm. which is a small, finite number of people, and those specific people have different feelings about this kind of thing. Right. Uh, I, I have been running, in parallel to each other, a 5e, very story-focused, high character development, char you know, big, big, powerful characters uh, game in my Empire of the Ghouls game, uh, 5e, mm -hmm. 5e game, and I've been running a Shadow Dark RPG game on Sundays. And in my Shadow Dark game, characters are dying left and right. We now have a tally i killed my 13th character um mm -hmm. on and i have a tally including all of their deaths and the players there the deaths are not really they're, they're they don't want to die but it's not really a disappointment right so when right. i ha i asked a character like one of the players they they they, they act uh, attacked a mummy the mummy killed where knocked one of the characters to zero and then with their second attack just curb stomped them Right, just mm -hmm. des destroyed them. Their name was Skull, which was the name of the character was Skull, which was very fitting, given <laughs> that they're Skull. Given how they crushed, how they passed, crushed yeah. underfoot. Yeah, and then I said like, what goes through your mind right before the foot of the mummy goes through it? What goes through your mind? And and they said, at least I died in this bitch in armor. Right, <laughs> and like that was their 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 final thing was like, at least I got an awesome suit of armor to die in. Yeah. And. So they just were on board with it. But I know I have players in my other group who would not be on board with that. They, they would hang on to the disappointment aspect of feeling like you lost, feeling mm -hmm. like you, you failed because of like, oh, I rolled a seven instead of a three, yeah. right? Which is not, not really a, a, a playable thing. So knowing what your players want feels yeah. very important to me. Knowing what, how your players handle, like what counts as disappointment to them is something worth exploring for the specific players you have in front of you. Right. Uh, for, for 5e, I will offer something which I talked about on another show too and, and other people have talked about, which is specifically on the idea of like having players who roll dice and they roll their attack and they miss and then it's like 20 minutes before it's their next turn because you got a lot of players at the table and maybe you're higher level. And so like when you miss on your big thing, it sucks because like you just didn't do the thing and now you got to wait another 20 minutes for another chance to do the thing again. Mm -hmm. uh, one thing I've added to my game is the luck system from uh, Black Flag, Kobo Press's Black Flag, which is the engine that sits behind uh, Tales of the Valiant. And yeah. they replaced inspiration with luck. And the cool bit about luck is that when you fail an attack roll, you get a luck point, which you can then either use to increase uh, uh, another d20 roll, or if you get three of them, you can re-roll. And it's a pretty minor effect, right? It, it takes three of those before you can actually re-roll a die. But I have seen players who say, oh, well, at least I got a luck point, right? Mm -hmm. And it's just enough of a, of a positive spin on a big negative thing that they, right. they have a little thing that they're like, well, I, I, I know I'm better off next time. It's sort of like reverse momentum of the, of the movement. Yeah. And that just that slight shift uh, has really made my own 5e games better. I've now been running it for, I think, I mean, since it came out, really. I'm like, hey, let's try this out. So at least six months in multiple 5e games. And I haven't had anybody that didn't like it. And boy, as a DM, I love it because they manage it themselves. Mm -hmm. I don't have to worry about distributing inspiration. Yeah. They're getting luck just by rolling crappy rolls. Yeah. And I think Wizards, in one of the, in the, I don't know where it stands in the current 5e um, uh, 2024 playtests, so the D&D &D 2024 playtests, but they were toying with getting inspiration on a 20 or on a 1. Right. And I always felt like, oh, you should definitely do it on a 1. Right, because 
now it, you it, already it like you already feel good on the 20 you don't need the yeah extra. you already feel good yeah. on the 20 you don't need something yeah. else now the problem is like rolling a one and missing it, you know, you're going to miss far more often than you're going to roll a one so it's going to be a yeah. while before you have to really fail and that's why i think the luck works because it's it's not as much as inspiration right uh but you get it anytime you fail at roll so those are those are things that i like but i think the general thing is like really think about your players and what they like and then yeah you know see what you can do to in 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 how you run your game and the mechanics of what you run in your game to try to minimize um, the, 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 the bad disappointment, if, right. you know, on the assumption there is a good disappointment. And, and that, that's the thing, right? I want to get rid of the term disappointment altogether because disappointment in, in its very definition has that negative connotation, yeah, right? right? It's like right. the question, would you rather be lucky or good? I would rather be yeah. lucky <laughs> because <about> lucky <laughs> implies the fact that there was a success somewhere, whereas <laughs> right. good implies you are good at something, but not great. So you probably did not succeed. Uh, and it's right. like that. So I don't want to use the word disappointment. It's loaded. I want to use the term like success, failure or upbeat, downbeat, because that now when you're talking about game design, these are some things that you can really latch on to and you can look at discreetly for how the game presents them because if you're a game designer you're not designing for that group of six people there you're designing for the entire audience that might want your game so at that point you need to be able to look at things and say how does this game handle success or failure how does it handle upbeats and downbeats and then you have to look at it in terms of the mechanics of the game right the dice that you roll the cards that you draw and what they give to the game and the narrative side of things uh, right. because the game may have one sense of what it wants to do with with this success or failure narratives are a completely different thing right the stories yeah. that we watch we want there to be tension we want there to be a question will they or won't they succeed whereas in a game the the mechanical side of it it might be completely antithetical to what we want in stories or it may coincide completely so right, right. in in that sense we want to think about tension we want to think about what does success or failure mean? So when we get to the question of how do you make downbeats fun in combat, my answer is have it mean something other than just you failed. Right. Now, that might be narrative, right? You might describe it in a way that's funny or tense, that's entertaining to yourself, to the other players, and to the person who failed. Uh, right. Or if you change the 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 static nature of what's happening so not only did you fail but now there's this wrinkle that i can add to the game and right. it does 5e doesn't do that naturally so you sort of have to step out to to do that but other games do do so right the some of the powered by the apocalypse games where it succeed with a consequence yeah uh, yeah and and then uh, so you can start looking at those sorts of designs. I would suggest you read the, the book Hamlet's Hit Points by Robin Laws yep. Yep. Uh, because yep. he talks about story beats n both in terms of narrative and in terms of gameplay. And yep. that can help you at least get into the mindset of, okay, this is what it means to have tension and have success and then have failure or yep. have the threat of success or failure and make that a, an important part of your story and an important part of your game. Right. Yep. Yep.
Yeah, and, and a downward beat can be something like a hard battle where you burned a lot of resources, but we're still right. successful. Right. right. It doesn't always have to be failure. It could be right. difficulty. Yeah. Um, yeah, and it's also interesting, MCDM's RPG, I think you guys talked about it, doesn't have an attack roll, right? right. You, you always hit, it's just how much you do. And right. so that's an example of like, kind of steering things a little differently to just not have the dud, right? Yeah. But to, then you always have to contend with the players. You have to contend with the players who, if the game play is you always hit, then they're disappointed that, oh, I only, <laughs> did, low. I only did 12 points of damage when I could have sure. done 80. But I still get that in 5e, right? Like, oh, I hit, yeah. oh, I rolled a one. Right. <laughs> I rolled a one on my damage. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, and so you're always going to have to deal with, as Mike has said, individual players and what their disappointment level or what their right. what, what their definition of yeah. disappointment is. And you might have uh, to see it. You can ask them, but they might uh -huh. not tell you the truth. You have to watch yeah. it happen, right? And, and Pe see people it. lie, Mike. Have you ever noticed? Well, or they not. They, it, you know, it's not just they lie. They just don't describe themselves accurately. Right. Not because they're hiding it, but just they don't. Right. Necessarily they don't understand. It. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. 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 So our next question comes via Alien Shadow uh, on Twitter, saying, generally speaking, DMs, if you feel the party needs a boost, do you A, run a DM PC, or two, give the PCs feats, boons, sidekicks, which they control, potions, mag magic items, etc., or three, something else entirely? And uh, so for this question... As per usual, I avoid the question completely and ask a question back, which right. is if you're the DM, why does your party need a boost? Yeah, what, what you does could, that mean? You right. control the challenge. Right. Uh, if something is obviously too much for them, it is in your control to change the situation, to reduce the challenge, present the challenge in a new way. Um, yep. You don't ever have to even worry about their capabilities if you control this end of the equation. Yeah. Yeah, there, there are, yeah, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, no, I, I wanted to hear So I was thoughts. just going to say, there are some times where you might be completely lacking in a specific thing, that even as you're changing the challenges, for example, having a group that doesn't have any sort of ability to hit more than one monster at a time is going to be hard mm -hmm. for those times where you have to fight lots of monsters. Or if you don't have any way to heal, right? Like the, the common one is, do we have a healer? Like if you don't mm -hmm. have a healer, is that going to be trouble if anybody drops or if people need healing? So there are times where there's like a, a hole in a configuration of, of character abilities. Or even like, we don't have anybody that's good at talking, right? All, all of us, we all took charisma as our dump stat and mm -hmm. none of us are good at talking. Do you need some way to, you know, like, you know, it, it, that even that can be hard to deal with if you were planning on running a game where you're gonna have characters talking. So there's there are certain times where there's a hole in the, yeah. you know, in the, in the complement of characters that, that might be harder to fix than just sort of shifting the challenge around a little bit. Yep. Now, if there is a, as Mike just said, if there is a reason why you do need to give the party a boost, if, if you need to give them something, my, my rules for my own preferences are never run a DMPC unless it's absolutely necessary. Yeah, um, I, I have enough. I don't, I don't know when time. it is in, I don't know yeah. when it is absolutely necessary. <laughs> right. Yeah. I, I've tried to run one in 20 years. Right. Yeah. yeah. So, so. Yeah, I don't do that. If you can make that work for your group, great. But I avoid it uh, for a lot of different reasons. I also try to fiddle with the characters as little as possible. Uh, 
especially giving them things that change their character. Here, here, take two extra feats. Here, take yeah. this boon. The game was, you can change the game any way you want for your group. But the game was built with certain expectations in mind. So to go off and to really change the characters can work for you in that instance, but then it becomes a problem down the road. Yeah. Giving magic items is much easier. As Mike yeah. said, if you have no healing, oh, guess what? You find yeah. scrolls of cure wounds or potions of cure yeah. wounds or whatever it is yeah. that you that need. Ring, the ring that lets you cast a healing word once a day. Exactly. Just to get the just just to get the the you know, barbarian up when he falls. <laughs> get your fighter back off up on their feet. Yeah. Exactly. And then if if there is a reason, especially a story reason, to have NPCs travel with the party. I like to make a stat block and hand it to the players and say, somebody run this this uh, NPC, there's the stat block. Even if it's something that later I'm going to need to take back as the DM to run it as a monster or at, you know in some other way, just get it out of my hands. Let the players do it. They're, it's their story uh, along with your guidance, so let them tell the story in their own way. Yeah. Do you have yeah, any I, I... similar rules? Yeah, so uh, in, in particular, one-on-one -on -one games that I've run and love, uh, in one-on-one -on -one games, the thing that I have found personally that works best is to give the player a sidekick that's clearly not their main... They have a main character, and then they have a sidekick character. They control the sidekick character from a mechanical standpoint, mm -hmm. but the GM can role-play the sidekick. Mm -hmm. And I, I, if you're going to do a GM... PC like that's sort of a half GM PC, but really yeah. it's an NPC <laughs> that's running, you know, whose right. mechanics are with the character. But the nice thing about that is in a one-on-one -on -one game that definitely gives, you know, like it's really hard to run D&D &D with just a single character. Uh, mm -hmm. Two characters can is de is definitely doable, and um, and then you can give the mechanics of that character to the player. That that worked really well for me when I've run one-on-one -on -one games a few times. Mm -hmm. Excellent. And the final question comes from Talos the Stormlord via our Patreon Discord. And we better get this one right. Yeah, there has been some great conversation around this topic on uh, on this on this topic and many topics on our Discord. But this one, uh, Talos sums up with this question for us. We are discussing the D&D 5e meta plot with the obelisks that may culminate in the Vecna adventure in 2024. It seems like Wizards of the Coast wanted to have an underlying story advancing in 5e, revealing the mystery of the obelisks and what they're for. But it seems like either they didn't fully commit or didn't fully plan it out because it's not been consistently building. For example, the Shattered Obelisk Adventure told us nothing new despite being named for <laughs> the Metaplots MacGuffin. So it got us wondering, one, what are examples of good meta plots that run across other D&D adventure series, whole editions, or other products? Uh, someone mentioned Traveler's Imperial Rebellion story arc. And two, perhaps most importantly, what does that tell us about making a good meta plot? And I'm going to start with examples, uh, even though I want to start the other way. But I'll start with examples. For me, the the ultimate meta plot uh was the Marvel Cinematic Universe. When you watched Iron Man and you sit there and those of you who sat through the credits would then say, wait, there's more. And it has, right, has, has Samuel L. Jackson come up. Now, I knew nothing about comic books. 
So I hear all my friends going, did you see what the, after the, the trailer, after the credits and, and talking to each other about how cool it was? And I had no idea who Nick Fury was. I had no idea what S.H.I.E.L.D. was. Uh, so I'm like, yeah, dude, Aunt Samuel L. Jackson just showed up and said something about Avenger something. And they're like, no, man, don't you get it? I'm like, no, I, I, I don't get it. But that's an example of a meta plot done right because they are pl- or at least done better because they're planning years and years into the future. Well, they, and they have like, wasn't wasn't there an end scene where it's like Agent Coulson is like, yeah, we found something weird and it's Mjolnir. Yeah. <laughs> and you're like, oh, Thor's coming. It, like, exactly. Oh, oh, oh. So, like, so in terms of Jackson is Nick Fury. Something else is he freaking Thor. This is true. So that's done right. Uh, or at least that's done in a way that it reveals this meta plot. Um, in a way that's exciting and fun and people who are into it are really, really into it. I was having trouble thinking of RPG meta plots. So I had to go all the way back. There have been some. Yeah, I'm sure there have. I just, nothing popped into my head. So against the giants, right? Those Mm -hmm. AD&D adventures, you start off in the studying of the Hill Giant Chief. And then there are clues that say, oh, but there's also this, you know, these giants are getting together and talking, so maybe there are more giants somewhere. And that leads you to the glacial rift of the frost giant, Jarl. And then there's like, oh, but there's other giants, and they're doing things. Okay, that leads you to the Hall of the Fire Giant King. And at the end of that adventure, you see these strange, dark-skinned elves. And you're like, hmm, I don't know what these elves are. What's going on? And that's where the drow come in, which leads you to descent into the depths of the earth and then the shrine of Kuatoa and then vault of the drow and then all the way to queen of demon web pits so there is that larger meta plot there uh did you have other ones that you were I have, thinking i of? have three and you're okay. not gonna like them i'm sure i don't the time of troubles okay yeah the the sundering yeah yeah <laughs> and the yeah. second sundering okay <laughs> like you know i don't know if it was a second sundering i saw it on the wiki it was the um, re the re unsundering. <laughs> the, re, the unsundering, right? And and this actually, you know, if I'm gonna uh, if I'll have a hot take on this, this mm-hmm. is one of those good examples where I don't think RPGs are better served than other fictional events, mm-hmm. because they don't involve the characters, and the characters yeah. are what really matter. Mm-hmm. And so one of the reasons why I think like this the spell plague was both like a, a story element built on a marketing philosophy. Mm-hmm. Right. Of like, oh, let's we're going to move the whole Forgotten Realms forward 100 years so that people won't feel like they are lost in the storyline and we can kind of do a big reset. But we'll also have a big event. We'll have all these writers write for it. And we'll have the spell plague. And I, I still couldn't explain to you what the hell the spell plague was. Right. Like, I, mm-hmm. you know, it doesn't make. And most people are like, man, I just wanted the Forgotten Realms to run in. And I remember when I was like 14 and I remember reading the books that were based on the Time of Troubles. And I was like, I don't want this. I just want my characters to be doing things in the realms. Yeah. The idea that there's these other characters who are kind of gods walking around doing god stuff. And the whole world is changing from book A to book C. Now I've got to account for all of these changes in my own home game. And I don't want to do that. Mm-hmm. I don't want these big changes. So I feel like you, know, you could have sort of a meta event like the last war in Eberron, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. where it happened already it's already done it's already part of the event it's not a ongoing meta plot it's just you know an event that occurred in the past that you can use to kind of drive your characters and your stories and your plots forward anyway and then you can build your own meta plots in your own campaigns that mm-hmm. are directly tied to the characters that are in the game mm-hmm. and you know that's where I, I i think it breaks down and it's like 
if we hung on too tightly to the obelisk stuff, then that could overtake the elements of the story of our of our games that our players are actually part of, right? Mm -hmm. And that's yeah. now I think it's different in organized play. Like organized mm -hmm. play meta events could right. be very important for being the cohesive nature. I remember like each season of the like I didn't really get involved in organized play until until five e. I guess four and I did some four E stuff, a four E and five E. And but I remember that like when they were doing sort of the Adventures League seasonal stuff, there were sort of meta events that were built around those seasonal mm -hmm. campaigns. And then right. the adventures you ran were sort of tied to them. Yeah. Um and that, that can work a little better because you recognize that I'm just one character of thousands that are in the world right now while all of this is going on. Yeah. Um but in a home game, like it seems so much better to build your own big meta events that involve the characters directly. Instead of having like, you know, like, instead of having Wizards of the Coast dictate one to you, right? right. Like, make your own. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. No, no, and and it can be, it could be fun to say, the multiverse spanning threat now is blank, and look how it affects Eberron. Look at how it affects the Forgotten Realms. Look at how it affects, and and so you could you could bring your characters into it that way. As, as long as what you're saying, Mike, is true, is that it's your characters in your game that are doing the thing, not someone else. Um, I don't I don't think we need a spell plague that affects all game worlds. No. <laughs> right? like, yeah, I, I, I don't, don't mean don't I don't mean Emeron. that I don't mean that changes the world. I right. mean, yeah, for these the, the next adventure for each of these worlds is going to take into account this thing. So the threat is going to be yeah. this. Not that the whole world changes, not that you can't run your home games now, but just, right, right. you know, th this sort of thing. But, I, you know, what we're getting at is, at least for me, is that meta plots are actually easy, right? Because all meta plots are, are plots that are spread over the course of several items rather than just within one item. At least to me, that's what a meta plot is. What's difficult is making them stand out in a way that reveals slowly has an impact so when when the threads of the meta plot are introduced they introduce curiosity into the game hmm what's this or ooh does this mean something and then have that actually play out over several uh several pieces of media whether it's books movies tv shows rpgs whatever uh easy to want to do very very hard to do well right in a, in a way that is pleasing to everyone yeah uh, yeah so right. you just have to think ahead if you're doing it for your home games think ahead think about what the final what you plan the final thing to be and start leaving seeds they don't have to be too overt you can start with some small clues that will then lead up to larger things later Right. With that in mind, we are now going to switch over to our news and commentary section. Starting with some sad news, we are remembering Janelle Jaques. Uh, on January 10th, the industry lost uh, Janelle. She was an incredible contributor to the RPG community, not just in tabletop games, but also in video games. Uh, she was the author of some of the first adventures ever sold for role-playing games, such as Dark Tower, 
Caverns of Thracia, Griffin Mountain, and many other adventures that were then used as a template for not just DMs, but for other game designers to create their own uh, stuff over the years. The fifth Forgotten Realm supplement, The Savage North, was a work of Janelle's. She was also an artist all the way back to the classic first edition AD&D hardbacks, uh, to Dragon Magazine covers, second edition work uh, book covers and art impressive, whether they were black and white drawings or full color covers. She also did uh, miniature concepting and sculpting work. Uh, what do you remember uh, Janelle for in your gaming life? Yeah, so I'm 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 not familiar. I have seen some of her older older works, but I had not really dug into it. And what first brought her name to my attention was Justin Alexander on the Alexandrian, mm -hmm. uh, digging into her particular designs for dungeon maps, which he originally called Jayquay's style dungeon yep. design. Yeah, so I, I really only uh, you know became aware of of her work from those articles and particularly for asymmetric dungeon design, the idea mm -hmm. of having, you know, building engaging dungeons. We were talking about upward beats and downward beats before and how that works. And the idea of like the, how the physical design of a dungeon can support those kind of beats. The idea of giving players the opportunity for discovery, for learning mm -hmm. things, for hacking things. That idea of like, you know, you have your, I, I always thought of like the, the simplest Jayquay's style dungeon is two rooms with a main hall and a secret hall. Right. And mm -hmm. it's like, you know, when the players get to discover the secret hall, they feel like they got a leg up on somebody. Right. Right. And I think we see that in other dungeons like Dyson from Dyson's logos uses a lot of dungeon design like that. Um, and, you know, we've seen I've, I've seen this in many, you know, different different D&D designs. Um, and yeah, so I, I really became aware of it from that and then looked back over some over her, her older work. I actually want to pick up the Savage North Guide because I've heard mm -hmm. wonderful things about it. Um, uh, 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 Gnome Stew just had a really good article uh, looking back at a lot of her work that, that I had read. So yeah, very, very sad, very, very sad to, to, to have lost her for this community. Yeah. Uh, if you want to read others, as Mike said, there are some articles out there, including Shannon Applecline, uh, RPG historian, uh, has a great article on uh, designersanddragons.com about uh, what Janelle has done for the industry. And you can also help by donating to uh, cover medical costs that her widow is uh, enduring. There's a GoFundMe for uh, Janelle Jaquies. So uh, you can check that out. And thanks, uh, Janelle, for everything you've done for the industry. We have news from Evil Hat on the business side of things. Evil Hat shared their quarter four 2023 numbers. Um, they do so every quarter, which is you know, very informative for we in the industry who keep track of such things. And Mike and I have, before the show started, looked at a, a little bit of data. And Mike even did the due diligence of reaching out to get even more answers. Uh, so looking at these numbers, Mike, what uh, what what were some of your thoughts? So, yeah, it's interesting. I mean, this is, you know, there's a whole other side to this hobby and particularly for me as a as a you know independent publisher, I'm always fascinated with like oh thank God giant spreadsheets oh big spreadsheets <laughs> full of numbers that I could dive into and do pivoting on and do analysis and comparisons and all kinds of stuff because it's very interesting to see like how are other people getting along 
uh, getting along in the industry. I did have a bunch of questions and like you and I were talking about it. And I was like, so that Blades in the Dark, right? Like 68,000 copies of Blades in the Dark. Is that all of them? Does that include Amazon copies? Does that include other copies? And I was like, I don't really know. So I reached out to, uh, uh, to uh, Fred from Evil Hat and, and asked him like some questions on that. And it turns out there was some interesting things like, uh, that they don't have the digital rights to Blades in the Dark on other platforms, so it doesn't include things like drive-through RPG sales, right? So you, taking mm. the numbers with a grain of salt is is pretty interesting. But then you say like, well, what does it all mean? And I'm like, I don't know. Let me ask him. So you know, and and in my conversation with him right before the show, uh, he was like, yeah, you can ask me. You know, we, we're, we, he very much wants to be an open book about what the business is like. And I was like, well, so how's it going? Right. Like, you know, of all the we can dive into the numbers and all that stuff. But the big question is like, how how does he feel about it? And his answer is he feels good. Right. He feels mm -hmm. good about the numbers that he saw. He said that this was really that this is something he brought up. I asked him if I had his permission to talk about this on the show because it was like, well, you know, whenever anybody starts talking about like numbers and dollars, I'm like, well, I'm not talking about it, but you can talk about it. And so I wanted to be sure. And one of the things he said is that 2023 was their biggest gross revenue year, uh, which was about two million dollars. That was a mix of um web store sales distribution sales and crowdfunding uh that in fairness is not adjusted for inflation so like the mm -hmm. two million dollars being high and and then he said they spent 94 percent of that in 2023 so that the total profit on two million dollars is about a hundred thousand and i was like oh like, like that is a huge <laughs> right like man that's a big you know yeah. That's a high percentage. But then you're like, well, if you really are taking the money that you're getting from all these and investing them in the other books and investing them in stuff. And, and, and I think mm -hmm. you asked, you brought up, well, what about staff? And I was like, oh, that's a good point. Cause like, I don't have a staff. It's me and my wife. Right. Mm -hmm. And um, so for us, like we don't take a salary. It's all, anything that comes in comes right to us. And he does, he, he basically, he doesn't, he is the only other full timer mm -hmm. and everybody else is contract support and none of them are full time. Uh, and he has about one, two, three, four, about five, it looks like five other people working part time on uh, different different aspects of the business. And they're the money that he's paying them for that work is also coming out of that, um, you know, coming out of the money that they're earning. So well, then as soon as you say, OK, you've got staff on board, you can understand why, mm -hmm. you know, total profit margin is only one hundred thousand dollars on a two million dollar uh, gross you know, gross amount. So that, that, you know, that to me is a fascinating thing, but really the big question is that you want to, that I ask is like, how do people feel about it? Right. Are you, mm -hmm. are you happy with how things went? And, you know, I guess we use some of this as sort of a benchmark of the industry and where things are going, but I, I don't know how much you can use that uh, as a good benchmark, but I mean, you could kind of say, Hey, you know, all independent publishers of RPG products, whether you are selling a few products on the DMs Guild that you made yourself or whether you actually are doing things like warehousing and offset printing and or whether you have a staff like like Matt Colville with a whole company. How do you feel about how the industry has done is probably a pretty useful question to ask. Yeah. And then how, you know, checking it year to year. Um, right. That that to me is kind of a, a real a fascinating and interesting question. And I don't know that there's a good answer to it you know like i made a joke with somebody on a we were on a discord server with a bunch of other ttrpg marketing folks and i brought up a thing and i was like you know they were bringing up like the ai art controversies that have been going on recently and i said did you see a sales drop because of the ai art controversy and they're like no that'd be ridiculous i'm like so why are we worried <laughs> like yeah. like whatever the controversy is like i think it takes order of magnitude problems before we actually start to see it directly 
And that's, you know, that that's something that I, I, I try to keep in mind. Like Fred, as another independent publisher, I'm also happy. Like my, my last year was 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 fine. I think it wasn't as good as the year I had during COVID. Right. Mm -hmm. I probably had 20 percent overall drop from from where COVID is. But so did the whole rest of the world. Right. <laughs> you know, so did all of retail. And yeah. a 20 percent drop for me is not like, oh, my God, I went from in the black to in the red. Right. right? It, it's like, no, it, it was fine. I'm, I'm, I'm happy with things where things are going. But I also have lots of other support mechanisms in my life mm -hmm. that make that OK. Right. Yeah. Where like I can weather stuff like that. But yeah. Uh, yeah, so it's it, it was really fascinating and good on Fred for really putting all of his, you know, putting everything out there and letting people dive into the business. It's very yeah. rare. I don't know. I don't really know anybody. There's only a couple of other companies I know of that that do that. And um, and it's really fascinating to see. Yeah. Uh, I, Matthew Sprang um, or Sprange. Uh, uh, I can't remember the name of the company that he, that he does. They do. Um, they did like the Babylon 5 role playing game. Mm. Um he does like a state. Oh, mongoose publishing. That's it. He does a state of the mongoose thing every year. He doesn't drill down into to these numbers. I mean, I'm looking at the spreadsheet for what is it? Over 330 products between fiction, nonfiction, board games, virtual tabletop accessories, yeah. role playing yeah. games. And it's it's you know, what were sales last quarter? What were sales this quarter? What's the lifetime right. sales? Uh, right. So this is this is some uh, this is some in-depth data and i'm glad you reached out to fred uh fred hicks because you know knowing that they did two thousand or two million dollars in revenue if you had asked me how how much revenue did uh did uh evil hat, evil hat yeah. make this year if you had told me two million i would have said that's low that's got to be low mm -hmm. but that's the most that's the highest he said right that's the highest mm -hmm revenue that they've ever had um, yeah and you think uh you know one kickstarter could be four million dollars yeah <laughs> uh it just it shows the the range of what this industry is and what it could be because mm -hmm. uh, this this is that's that's two million dollars of revenue off of 300 products um yeah right which shows well, the the, right. the long tail. Of, yeah, three three hundred right. individual you know, skews, right? Like individual. Exactly. Yeah, individual yeah. things. Yeah, it is. There's some. I was just. I hadn't really dug into this, but it is also very interesting to see like his VTT sales. Right. right? He's got a whole section on just stuffy VTTs, and it sells hardly anything. Yeah. There's some cases you see like the Monster of the Week core books sold some. I also wonder if these were like the VTTs were bundled in with other sort of right. products. And, and that's why, like you see zero, 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 you know, 300. And it's like, wow, you know, did monster of the week just do really well as a core book on VTTs or was it because that was included in some kind of other package, mm -hmm. you know, same girl by moon night, moonlight, which I don't, I don't actually know what that is. Had a thousand, you know, a thousand mm -hmm. VTT sales. I, I got to believe that that was bundled in. Yeah. with with something else but that's really interesting to see because there is one of the things that's interesting is there and, and particularly for people who aren't publishers but are pressuring publishers there's a lot of times where they're pressuring publishers saying like i can't believe you don't have a foundry module for right. product x and you're like yeah. it's going to cost me a lot of money and no one's going to buy it right yeah. or you, know, yeah. you you'll buy it and like three of your friends and no one else will do it and i'll never make my money back yeah and, you know, I've done experiments like that. We did, you know, we did an experiment for, for Fantastic Layers where we're like, oh, let's put Fantastic Layers up on Roll20. Mm -hmm. And it makes hardly anything, right? Like, right. It, it, you know, it, 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 
you know, it, it didn't work. Mm -hmm. It was an experiment mm -hmm. that didn't work. And so that there's definitely times where people think that something would be a good idea. Right. And data like this helps you see, ah, no, that's not how yeah. that's going to work. Yeah. 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 Same with translations, right? You get requests yeah. for, please oh, translate, translate this into yeah. German. Yeah. You know, right. my friends and I all want it. Well, right. Right. That's there's four copies sold. Yeah, uh, I have I have one translation that I did of return in Italian mm -hmm. and I, you know, every so often I get a check. Right. Mm -hmm. Every so often they send me some money for it. And the only nice thought there was I didn't pay for it. Right. <laughs> they, 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 I, yeah. didn't, I didn't have to pay for the translation. They just get right. a bigger percentage of the total. And that's that that worked out. But but yeah, yeah. that's one of the issues. And my 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 sort of counteraction for that is try to release as much as I can under an open license that lets people translate it if they want to. Mm -hmm. And so I have a lazy GM resource guide available under a Creative Commons license. And now there are it's in Japanese mm -hmm. and it's you know it's in a whole bunch of languages that like it would have taken me forever to do mm -hmm. that. And people don't understand how hard that is. Like how hard oh yeah you know doing a quality translation job really is. It's really tough. So yeah. Mm -hmm. I get that all the time too though. So that, that was an interesting thing. We have a link in the show notes to all of that information, which is in uh, Google Doc. In our crowdfunding news, we have a creator in crowdfunding news. We have Andy Demps, who did a blog as a follow-up about the conversation that we had both on Mastering Dungeons and the Eldritch Lorecast about the stun condition. Um, and Andy gives examples from his actual play at conventions over the years about how it's worked and what people's reactions have been to it. So if you want to check that out, please do so. Um, have you been following along in any of those conversations, Mike? No, I'm just skim reading the article now. And I would start having not read the article, so thus I might be convinced I'm not a fan of the stunt condition. Yeah. <laughs> right? I, don't, I think it's a big nope. So I don't, right. yeah, it'll be interesting. Like, I'm going to read this article, and will the article change my mind on this? <laughs> well, it, it, it goes back, it sort of goes back to the first question we answered, which is about players, right? Yeah. Some players do that. Stunned is a real downbeat for a character. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and how people react to it will depend on the player. It'll depend on the game. I mean, we're talking about stunned in terms of 5th edition D&D and what that means, which is, hey, you, you can't do anything this round. Uh, right. So yeah. Taking agency away is always a real rough area. Yeah. yeah. Uh, we wanted to also mention that Roll20 has both Blade Runner and Planescape in formats that are very nice, very easy to run. Uh, Teos wanted to talk about this, but he's not here, so here I go. Uh, in uh, in some of the newer World 20 titles, they now have pages that provide overviews of the functionality to help you get the game up and running faster. So for Planescape, we get tokens for all the monsters, many of the NPC and even PC tokens, maps for all the major scenes with the tokens already set up or hidden, depending on where they are uh, in, expected to be shown in the adventure. The maps use all the features, including lighting, doors, and so forth. We get the Sigil uh, and Outlands poster map so that they can be shared with the players. A full compendium of all three books with the adventure broken into pieces, including those handouts. Teos says overall it's a great implementation. He uh, looks amazing, it works really well, and he recommends. And there's also a Blade Runner starter set on Roll20 for $30, uh, coming with handouts, visuals, the map of Los Angeles, the encounter maps, everything that we'd started talking about last week. 
They also have the capabilities for the initiative cards and other cards showing off art, dealing with the chase uh, mechanic, chase maneuvers and obstacles. It takes into account criticals. So when you roll, it has glowing character sheets for, for those critical hits. Uh, so Teos recommends that as well. And in fact, the second part of this episode, Teos will be here talking about the adventure that was included with the uh, with the starter set. And I got one more thing to talk about in uh, crowdfunding news. I want you to get ready for Surviving Strange Hollow. This is a Kickstarter that is coming late winter, early spring, published by Accidental Cyclops, who did a Kickstarter for an RPG called The Real Thing that was based on the music of Faith No More. Strange, Surviving Strange Hollow will be a 5e setting based on the artwork of the talented and visionary artist Emily Hare. If you type Emily Hare and do a search, you will see her art, and you probably will recognize it. I'm sure you've seen it somewhere if you're a fantasy fan. It's otherworldly and cute but spooky and goofy with that deadliness uh, lurking underneath. I mention this because I'm going to be the lead designer on this project. The first team we've put together are Ed Greenwood, Lisa Teague, uh, James Hake, Dale Kingsmill, Brian C.P. Steele, and Aaron Roberts. We're going to be doing the setting side of things with this team, creating the narratives, uh, creating the backstory, creating some of the areas that you will be adventuring in. Then we're going to name some more creators when we get to the mechanics side of things. And we're going to tailor those mechanics based on this world. So it's going to be a world first and then 5e mechanics to follow that up. Uh, I'll talk about it more on the show later, but you can go right now to accidentalcyclops.com and sign up to be notified with more information about uh, this Kickstarter when it comes out and some previews that we will be giving along the way. So if you could check that out, I appreciate it. Mike, thank you so much for coming on to the show, talking about the news and giving your uh, take on some of these questions. I am always happy to do it. Thank you so much for having me. My pleasure. And now more with Teos and I on the adventure in the Blade Runner starter set. In that case, spoilers for the adventure Electric Dreams, which is the adventure in the starter set of the Blade Runner RPG. If you do not want to be spoiled on this adventure, now's the time to check out. I'm going to stop listening to Teos right now. Uh, I'm just going to sit here and look like a fool. So, Teos, as we have said in the past, these intro adventures are so important because they tell you exactly how the game designers and the game publisher expects you to use their rules. So let's see how this goes uh, with the Blade Runner. Yeah, so... Exactly right. And when I read the rules and I go, oh, this sounds so cool. Like, what does it mean to be human? What does it mean to be a replicant? What is, you know, da, da, da. Uh, how do I write an adventure that does that? Right? Like, I don't immediately know. Like, I could just mess around and find out. But it's not like build a dungeon with a temple at the end and stop the ritual. That's pretty easy for me. I'm accomplished with that. Well, Electric Dreams, Dreams walks you through that. And, and the start is very interesting. So this is a 54-page book. Um, they call them case files. 
Um, and and so it's very small, you know, 54 pages compared to what was it, 96 for the Planescape thing we just reviewed. Um, and it's meant to run, I don't know, like maybe three sessions, something like that is, is probably pretty typical. But uh, looking online, a lot of people had run it for, you know, five or six sessions. Um, I, I played it in one, but the DM was very adept at modifying it so that it could end in, in three to four hours. Um, it's very hard to do that. So you, you're looking at least two sessions. Um, it's made for up to four players. So that's a little bit of a limit if you have a larger group. But And they make suggestions for what PCs, which pregens to use if there are fewer than three characters. You can, of course, make your own and then just draw from those conclusions as to the roles of the PCs. The introduction is very interesting. Um, I ran it as is to see how it went, and it played pretty well, which is a grizzled old detective pregen Novak is sitting at having noodles, right? This is right out of the movies. And a lot of things will be very evocative of the movies. And then the replicant Fena, the other character shows up and her job, and she gets a handout for this is go find Novak, bring him out of sort of his, you know, being away semi-retired to come do his work. And Novak's sort of hook is should be retired, but ran out of money. So so you need to work, right? You need to come back. And that's sort of part of your, your grizzled kind of nature. And Novak is reading the newspaper, which is a handout. And boy, that handout, the DMs, the players don't realize it at first. Everything is relevant to the story. Every little bit has something there for you. And in fact, there are clues in the newspaper, which is really cool. Um, and and uh, the DM is encouraged to let them just kind of talk, right? Role play, which is a nice way to get into the, hey, this is this is this kind of game, right? This game is not like um, only make a check, only make a combat role. Like, no, you know, get into it. And, and so, in fact, they do. You know, you give your players that freedom for the two to kind of role play a bit um, and, and kind of, you know, let's go back and da-da-da. And then when you fly back to LAPD headquarters, then the other two or how many other PCs are playing are there. In a briefing by Deputy Chief David Holden, who's the guy who gets beat up by in that whole turtle on its back scene in the original movie, that's that guy recovered and, and he's got an iron lung and he's there giving the briefing. And the briefing is is pretty cool in that it it sets the scene and gives you a bunch of options for what you can look into. And, and, and in both the times that I've gone through this intro part, um, there are a lot of questions the players have. The players have feel like they have a lot of options. There's zero sense of a railroad, right? It's like, ooh, I want to look at this. Oh, yeah, I want to look at this thing. You know what? Maybe I'll go with you and we can do that first. Like, it's fun, engaging, highly motivating kind of scene. Um, and any thoughts, questions so far, Sean? No, I okay. do. You, the question I was going to ask yeah. is what you just answered, which was, <laughs> you know, sometimes players, especially with a new game, have trouble figuring out what to do first. You know, what do I do? And a game will help them answer that question. So I wondered how how that uh, would work for this game. Yeah, you know, when I run like that first scene, right at the, the noodle, like the funny thing is the DM doesn't do much. Right. Like if they order a board of noodle bowl of noodles, then you get to say something. And I always have this like in my mind, like a fear of like, are, are the players going to really role play on their own? And the answer is they do. You know, they do. Even if your players aren't much into role playing, they'll have a little fun. They'll have their kind of fun. And it is really a moment for you to just sit back. And then when they all show up at the briefing, you get to give your 
a fair amount of box text, but it's full of juicy details. There's a little art there, you know, like I could tweak this scene a bit in that um, there is a lot to say. And, and so some of them might be missed, but that's okay because there'll be more opportunities to go back and do these things. Um, in fact, one of the things you can do is go back to Holden and say, hey, Deputy Chief, what do I need to do? And he'll dock your promotion point and tell you, because <laughs> why are you here, you idiot? Go, go be useful, you know, but they'll tell you, right? And so, so you can always come back for more and, and there'll be other clues that circle around to, to lead to same ways. Um, and so if you think of one of those conspiracy boards with all the like, you know, threads tied together it's a little bit like that not quite mm -hmm. um but there are a number of ways to get to to other places so the briefing and the plot two blade runners called leia and sandor were in a nightclub it's the same nightclub from the first movie called the snake pit both of them are nexus nine so the latest model just like your folks who are replicants in the party they were investigating reports of suspected nexus eight activity the old model that you're not supposed to be around you're supposed to have been turned in and killed, and there's lots of history around why some of them are around. Um, Sander was shot dead. Leah is missing. Human supremacists were present. Uh, you got to figure out what happened. Quell, who is the PR manager for Wallace Corporation, is pressuring the LAPD to resolve this quickly because, hey, we want nothing but the best advertising news around Nexus 9s and some sort of Nexus 9 missing shot, whatever. We don't want any bad press. So, one of the things you hear in this briefing is Quell, the PR manager, expects you to come and visit her post haste. Um, there is a sleazy tabloid kill magazine that will likely cover the story. And you are encouraged to split up to cover the ground faster. And so immediately there's all kinds of things you can do. And, and one of the things that, that, you know, is here is this idea of like, what does the LAPD have? The LAPD has a drone network that you can look at those cameras. Uh, at what's called the Whisper Wall, um, there is uh, th there are databases information. You can go to their offices. There is the morgue, right? And so you have all these options of what to do. Uh, obviously, going to the Snake Pit, um, going to talk to Wallace, all of that. And now we use this time tracker sheet, which you know you can kind of see uh, my, my you know like kind of like that, right? Shifts and what you're doing mm -hmm. on each day. And and so you scroll on there, you know, OK, you know, character one and two are going to go to this place, character three, to that place and so on. So that everybody's dividing into shifts and doing things um, to find clues. And what's kind of neat about this is at certain specific intervals, events will happen. So I mentioned Kill Magazine, which is run by human supremacists. It will publish a story at a certain point in time. <laughs> and unless they do very specific things to counter it, which they probably won't. And so it'll, it, it, what the, when the story comes out, it'll make it look like maybe the Blade Runners uh, leaked this story. All right, it puts them in a negative light mm -hmm. and will, will cost them promotion points uh, unless they've done other things to counter that. Uh, there is an event where it's kind of unlikely to be avoided, uh, Wallace Corporation will decide, you know what, this hasn't gotten resolved. Let's just kill all the Blade Runners. <laughs> so the corporation sets a hit squad to just take you out and be done with that, right? Like just end the investigation. Uh, because you know kind of also too many things at this point that may lead into messy areas. So let's just get rid of you. Um, and, and then there are events that involve the villain, um, which is not really a villain, but, but Leia. 
the 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 Blade Runner who is missing, um, she will take actions and be in specific locations at specific times, and likely eludes the characters until late in the adventure. And so those events state, you know, right now Leia's at this place taking out this NPC. Leia's at this place getting on a ship to travel off world to escape. And so if you haven't found the right clues, those things will carry out um, in an interesting fashion. Okay. Uh, so pretty easy to run. There's a lot going on there. But there it sounds a, like that tracking sheet yeah. uh, helps. The tracking sheet helps. And they have a couple of different kind of organizational means. Uh, you know, like they have this, which looks, you know, like, a mess from afar. I'm showing a, a, a pic. I'm holding up the book. Flow chart. Where it has a kind of flow chart and there's a lot of arrows going in different directions, you know, kind of conspiracy theory style. But what it does do is if you say, wait, wait, how do they end up at, you know, what were the clues from the snake pit? You can say, okay, there are these two obvious clues in the snake pit. You know, Leah's apartment has two obvious clues to it. Uh, you know, if you go to the mainframe or the uh, Esper wall, you know, it has these three things that can lead to that kind of thing. So it, it makes it uh, a little easier to handle. And the way it generally does it is it treats things as locations, right? So you might go to either of the Blade Runner's apartments. You will probably go to the Snake Pit. You will, And so each of those kind of covers all the clues that are found there. And the story is written well so that generally it's bound to that location and you can handle that. There are a few exceptions, mostly around Leia. Um, and, and let's, you know, let's talk about what has happened, right? So the, the story here is um, Sander and Leia have gone to the snake pit to look for Nexus 8s. What Sander doesn't know is Leia frequents the location and is friends with a Nexus 8 there. <laughs> and this Nexus 8 called Styles is helping her because she has actually a bunch of trauma that's been going on due to her key memory of her daughter dying. We talked about those key memories that aren't real memories, they're they're fabricated. Well, in her key memory, she's off world and she some terrorists attack or something like that and her daughter is killed. And Lilith Tyrell, who is the daughter of the Tyrell from the first movie, has been employed by Wallace Corporation to help create replicants that are stable. And her opinion is the best way to control replicants is you give them a super traumatic memory, which will kick in if they think about doing something bad. But in some of the models, including Leah, it's making her unstable as every time she thinks about her daughter, it kind of drives her wild. And anything she thinks then goes back into this and creates a sort of loop of this. And so she has been doing all these things looking into her past, even though it's fabricated, like she's trying to get pictures out of her mind. Um, she's trying to learn about her daughter and talking to all these Nexus 8s for help. So that's what Leia's, what's going on with Leia. At the club, the way it plays out is a human supremacist heckles the dancer that's on the stage because she's a Nexus 9. Styles picks a fight with them, who's the Nexus 8 that's been helping Leia. Sandor notices, and he's going to go arrest or kill the Nexus 8, who is Leia's friend, Leia shoots her co-worker dead. And then she escapes in the chaos. So the, there's a mess of things there that you have to unentangle as characters to figure out, you know, who shot Sandor? Well, it was her partner. Uh, who, um, kind of, what were the supremacists doing? Did they shoot him? No, you know, but they were inciting the thing, you know, 
all this kind of thing. And then to follow the trail of figuring out who Styles is, and Styles and another man known as the Aurelian, who is also a Nexus 8, they work, uh, or, or the Aurelian works on uh, Animoid Row making fake butterflies, which is a very cool touch. And they are working to help Leia get off world because, in their opinion, look, like you made us. Uh, we live in this horrible world and this horrible system. We're just trying to survive, man. And so we're going to get her off world so she can be safe because the problem isn't her, it's you. It's the society, right? It's, it's these corporations. And Leia's like, yeah, I'm going to go off world. But Leia's plan in the story is I'm also going to go and get my revenge with Lilith Tyrell, who designed my fake memory. When she goes to visit Lilith Ty uh, Tyrell in her lab, Leia's daughter is there, who happens to look exactly like Leia, or Lilith's daughter is there, Lilith Tyrell, the designer. That daughter looks just like the fake memory. And in fact, Lilith and Leia look very similar because they're based on each other. So uh, there's a lot going on in, in those kinds of scenes. It's really nice sort of sci-fi. Depending on what clues the PCs gather, they may be able to stop Lilith Tyrell from being killed. Uh, they may be able to save uh, Lilith Tyrell's daughter. Or it may be that Leia offs Lilith, takes her daughter, and escapes off-world, right? And those are the kinds of things. And the questions of what do you do with the Nexus 8 as you go through all these scenes? And you will go through these shifts. You will have downtime that can have sort of interesting clues tied into the story. You will have opportunities to gain prom promotion and humanity based on the choices you make. And so, like, when I ran it, they uncovered one of the Nexus 8s, and there was some really good discussion about, do we turn this Nexus 8 in, which is what we're supposed to do? They'd captured him. Do you turn him in for termination? Do you let him go and work with him? And, boy, they were really close, and they finally decided to turn him in. Promotion points, boys. Good job, you know? Um, but... But but uh, nobody felt, you know, not too many of the characters, I think, felt uh, super good about that. Uh, but that's what they've done so far. And so it's rich to see what will happen down the road when they meet the Aurelian and Leah herself. Um, they haven't had the hit squad show up yet. They've had a fight with a bunch of Nexus 8s, um, kind of a gang of them. Um, and, and then throughout all of this, you've got these cool handouts. Uh, and then there's the final confrontation. Before I get to that, Sean, any thoughts, questions? No, it, it sounds it sounds like a a quite a few D and D non D and D games that have come out mm -hmm. over the years, where it does something well that D and D doesn't do well at its base, which is investigation, which is make that connection between the narrative and the mechanics mm -hmm. as strong as possible. Um, so you can see yet another way that a game does, does these things. Yeah. And some of it is the mechanics, but some of it's just the approach, right? So like if we think about our Planescape review, there are some times when the PCs are given these really interesting questions about themselves. You know, you are, I don't want to spoil it, but those who saw the scenes, you know, you, you know what we're talking about. Hey, the nature of you. And then it goes, would you like to just go run around Sigil and explore things? And you're like, don't I care about this really big thing going on? No. You know, but you should, yeah. you know, and this is the opposite. This is like, you are on point with the things the story is about. And, and it leans into that and yeah. it gives you those options 
so you can decide and and it and it it's not railroading you to say like you know now you'll go to this gate town like no like you may or may not have picked up the clues and if you didn't well this is what happens right and you may very well misinterpret yeah. these who are these gunned assailants that came to kill you you may pick up on exactly who they are the Tyrell corporation or the uh, Wallace corporation or you may not and and not be sure what's going on in fact one of the places they can show up is in the middle of the lab when you go to the lab you could have you it's one of the most fun ways to run it i think is your characters are at the lab to find Lilith Tyrell and learn about whatever's going on may or may not know that Leia is there who's about to try to make run with the daughter and kill Lilith and then you can have Wallace Corporation show up to kill everybody <laughs> <laughs> that's a wild scene and then Lilith will try to escape from that mess um you know that it's all up in the air right and and that's but you're given the ingredients to mix and make the soup right and and the players are the right. people who are deciding how much of everything gets added right or whether an ingredient matters or not um and and this everything about the way this is created supports it fairly well this is not a perfect adventure but i mean it's pretty good. Like I would not, uh, more than pretty good, pretty good too. It's very good. Um, and the things you might tweak are, are pretty minor, uh, because again, and this is something that D and D doesn't D and D like places it, it hinges almost on the words and how they're written. You know what I mean? Versus here, yeah. it hinges on what the players and DM do together. You know? Yeah. J just to be clear that, yeah. Just to be clear, this is not an indictment on D&D. &D. Mm -hmm. No, yeah, yeah. Because D&D yeah. &D wasn't written, the rules weren't written to do what this game does. Yeah. Because this game is based on a short story and two movies that have a very specific genre, very specific yeah. expectations. And D&D &D is built on Lord of the Rings. It's built on this sort of questing to find the thing and fight the big monsters and get from point A to point B and and defeat the thing and take its stuff and then yeah. use that stuff to defeat the next enemy. Um, and so it does exactly that. Uh, why it's fun to look at these other games is to see exactly why it can work. So if you do want to run a D&D game that has some of these things, it shows you a path with which to do it with the understanding that the rules themselves of D&D don't necessarily make it easy to do it, but you yeah. can modify it a bit to do it. And if you want the full experience, run this game mm -hmm. instead. Right. Yeah. And, and I think that it means that with D&D, when you're designing, uh, especially an investigative thing, you have to really think through those D&D specific challenges to create a great experience. And there are people who have, there are some really great investigative experiences there. And, you know, we talked about Cult of the Reptile God as an old example of that, or Sinister Secret of Saltmarsh. Um, and uh, uh, Logan Bonner's written a 4E adventure that's really good at doing these. And there are a number of cases where, where it can be done really, really well. Um, for, for this adventure, it, it one of the ways that things are handled, right, is it says that you will probably have a couple of possible end scenes, what it calls um, the final confrontation. So it may all play down in the memory lab where Lily Terrell is, like I was describing. That could be the end because they just resolve it. Or probably 
it won't be because she'll manage to get away based on how it's all set up. Um, and then the end is she is going to try to go off world meeting at the old Hollywood sign, which is <laughs> half standing. Um, there is a shuttle that's yeah. going to take some replicants off world. And I think they're all Nexus eights. So, you know, it's one of those questions of what do you do if you confront her? And she's just saying like, I just want to escape. And all these other people who are there are Nexus eights with whatever their stories are. You don't even know. And they want to leave. Do you gun them all down? Do you turn them all in? Do you, you know, what are you going to do? It's a really, really interesting thing. And and maybe Styles, depending on how it plays out, Styles or the Aurelian may be there at the at the final drop point uh, as a possible confrontation. So all of that creates a very rich question. And and if you're playing a, a human, you know, you may be thinking like, well, how do I feel about these replicants? But which some are my coworkers. Um, and, and how do I feel about, you know, just because you're an older model. Um, but Leia's a Nexus 9. Uh, if you're a replicant, you may be thinking, what's up with my key memory? Is that glitching? Mm -hmm. You know, it might be. And, and pregens have some interesting pieces to them that also tie into that whole idea of like, hey, you know what? I'm a Nexus 9 cop. My key memory was designed by Lilith Tyrell. You know, so how do I feel about yeah. Leia and offing her? Right. Like when right. she's kind of like me. <laughs> and so those yeah. create some really neat ideas. And and I mean, a, a plus job, I'd say, overall on this adventure. There, there are a few things that, you know, as a DM, you'll feel like they may be a little overwhelming. They'll probably go better than you think, which is nice. It go, it'll go better than you expect. Uh, it may feel a little challenging to run this, but but actually the scenes will play well. Uh, it's you're, you'll you'll be pretty supported in what you're doing here. And you can kind of choose how wild you want to be. Like one of the options is, you know, you can have the characters in their spinners and have the Wallace Corporation attack in the air and have a chase scene and rocket propelled grenades fired at you. And <laughs> you can make it more complex if you feel really comfortable with it or you can play it a little safer. And, and yeah, really nice, really nice job. And again, the starter set is an incredible value. The, the handouts, all of that, it's really nice. And if you own the core book and then you can use, put the rule book on the table for players to use, right? So it creates some options, nice stuff. Well, Teos, thank you for sharing your love and your knowledge of this starter set and this game with us. And thank you to all our listeners out there. We also want to give a special shout out to our patrons. Our patrons keep us going and we really do appreciate it. Whether you are a master of dungeon supporter a Master of Realms supporter who gets a shout out in our show notes, or our Masters of the Multiverse patrons who get individually acknowledged right now. Keith Ammon of the Monsters Know What They're Doing, Craig Bailey, Steve Bissonette, Merrick Blackman, Evil John, Darren Chandler, Seth Eckel, Andy Edmonds at nerdronomicon.com, Nathan Fuller, The Mighty Jerd, Ben Heisler and Paige Lightman, John Hurst, Chad Jackson, Brian King, Jim Klingler, a.k.a. DM Prime Mover, Chad Lynch, the Mathemagician, Eric Mengi, the Micro Ant, John Molly, Falcon Neal, Mike Olson, Post Fiction RPG Audio, Robert Pasley, Vladimir Prenner from Croatia, Chance Russo at Drago Russo, Ross Sandberg, Andy Shockney, Krishna Samose, Reyes, Joe Tyler, James Walton, Graham Ward, and Chris Weber. Thank you so much. We would appreciate your support in that same way, and you can give it by going to patreon.com slash mastering D&D, 
and giving us a little bit of your hard-earned money as well as your attention in this year of our Lord 2024. That's patreon.com slash masteringdnd. Also, if you want to help out, you can leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or via whatever means you listen to our podcast. And you can also subscribe to our YouTube channel, which would be helpful as well. Teos, where can people find you and your new and upcoming work on social media? Find me on alphastream.org. That is the place you can find the quick links to all of the Planescape episodes we covered. So if you're running that or want to remember whether you should run it, um, you can find direct links to our show notes if you're a patron subscriber to each episode uh, and the summary of all the advice we gave. So check that out at alphastream.org. Sean, where are you? You know where I am. I am on the social medias at Sean Merwin, whether it's Twitter or Bastodon or Blue Sky. Um, you can also follow the show on those uh, platforms as well. You can join our community and ask questions via our Patreon. And we have a wonderful Patreon Discord channel where we discuss all of these topics with our subscribers. And you can also leave comments on the Mastering Dungeons YouTube channel. That's YouTube at Mastering Dungeons. So, Teos. We have gone into the future, the dark, dark future, especially in L.A. What are we going to do now? Uh, well, I'm going to stop thinking about golden ages, and I'm going to log into my work so I can earn some promotion points. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, and I'm going to look at everyone around me and wonder if they're a replicant and then sort of wish I were. <laughs>